need a set of notes. Some of you brought your notes back from last week because we're continuing the notes distributed last Sunday. And we are continuing then our series, You Mean the Bible Teaches That. Today is week number two of nine. The ninth week will be a, just a Q&A session because we can't cover every question and every practical outworking of each of these issues in the time we have together. So we'll set aside that time on June 30th for a Q&A session. But next week, we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about abortion, the following week, capital punishment, then evolution, then race, then divorce, then suicide. And then on June 30th, as I said, we'll have that Q&A session. Page four in your notes, page four, is where we left off last week. And I'll try to quickly review what we looked at last week. We are taking two weeks, last week and this week, to look at the issue of homosexuality, what the Bible teaches about that. The reason we're taking two weeks with this issue and one week with all the other issues is because this particular issue has burst on the scene in our culture and has done so, as I documented last week, uh, very quickly. And it has moved from being a private matter to a public matter. From being, just a few decades ago, who are you to tell me what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom, to now being a demand for affirmation publicly for, for example, homosexual marriage or full participation in the military. So what used to be don't ask and don't tell has now become full rights of participation. Now, I'm not addressing whether or not as a policy matter for the military that's a good or a bad thing. I'm not addressing that right now. I'm simply talking about how this has changed and moved from what was a private issue to now a public issue. And as a result of that, uh, it has become an issue for many who never thought they would ever face that within their own homes. And so now you have young people who are confused a bit about who they who they are and what their sexual identity is. And they're being told today to do things they would not have been told just 20 years ago to do. And that is to affirm who you are, come out loud and proud. And now you have families who are having to deal with, what do I say about that? How do I direct my child? How do I help my child? So today, before we are finished, we have a section in the remainder of your notes on how we would treat loved ones or anyone who is struggling with this with this issue. So it has burst on the scene in the last just several years in ways that were really uh, unheard of and not even imagined just a few years ago. We also saw that the Bible is very clear, very clear and unambiguous that homosexual Homosexuality is sin. And the Bible says that both in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament as as well. We have the key passages for that listed for you on page number three of your of your notes. And we saw that in some of those passages, the Bible uses very strong language. In the first part of your Bible, when you had a theocracy and you had God carrying out his 
work in his world through a particular nation and a particular people, Israel and the Jews. God gave them his law as a way to govern the theocracy. We're not under the theocracy anymore, uh, but as part of the penalty for a number of offenses, including homosexuality, it was uh, death. And so many people look at that and they say, well, if death is the penalty for some things and not others, then those some things must be worse than the others. Which then raises the question, is homosexuality worse than other sins? And at the bottom of page three last week, I answered the question, no, in one sense. It's not worse. It's not worse in that any sin can and does damn us to eternity separate from God. Any kind of sin, whether in desire, whether in thought, whether in word, whether in deed, whether in commission or omission, any sin separates us from God, and that one sin is enough to separate us from God forever. Whatever the sin is, including homosexuality. But also, homosexuality is not worse in the sense that Christ didn't die differently for homosexuality on the cross. On the cross, Christ's death atones for every kind of sin in whatever quantity of sin. So in answer to the question, is homosexuality worse? The first answer should be no. It's not worse in that all sin damns us to hell and that Christ died for all sin. But the Bible does give capital punishment for some things and not others. And the Bible does speak in very strong language with regard to homosexuality. So why does it do that? Well, it's because it is worse. It is different in another sense. And I said on the bottom of page three that it is different and worse in what it affects and what it represents. What it affects and what it represents. And I made the case, again, at the bottom of page three, that the reason that the death penalty was given for some sins, including homosexuality, is because those sins had greater and more widespread effects and had more widespread effects on the society. To put it another way, they undermined civil order. And so sins in the category of those that undermine civil order, God gave very harsh punishments to in order for the nation to be kept together. And to be kept in order. We're now in the New Testament. We're no longer under that law. We're not in a theocracy. And so the death penalty is not demanded for uh, the sin of homosexuality. But nevertheless, the principle that it is a sin that undermines civil order is something that needs to be borne in mind by policymakers and, uh, and in terms of how best to deal with it. So is it worse? Yes, it's worse in its effects. Uh, and it's worse in what it represents. And that's why in Romans chapter 1, that we have listed for you on page 3, but in Romans chapter 1, homosexuality is singled out as an example of how people have turned from worshiping the Creator to worshiping created things, including themselves. And homosexuality is a very clear representation of the idolatry that all humanity engages in. So I said last week that we are all idolaters. 
when we sin. We are all exchanging the glory of the Creator for something less than the Creator or someone less than the Creator. We are all idolaters in some sense. Homosexuality is a very clear representation of that idolatry. So is it worse? No, in that every sin equally damns us and that Christ died equally for all sins. But yes, in its effects, and yes, in what it represents, and that explains why it's singled out in some of the ways it is in Scripture. Now, we saw last week that all of us have a a sin nature, and that all of us engage in this idolatry in various ways, homosexuality being a stark representation of idolatry, but all of us are idolaters in one way or another. And in fact, in one of the famous passages in the New Testament that talks about and condemns homosexuality, it condemns a bunch of other stuff too. So on page three, I have for you in the middle of that page, First Corinthians chapter six, that says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then you have this list, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, Male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So notice, it's not the only representation. It's just a very clear representation of what Romans 1 calls exchanging the glory of the creator for for the creature. I'm good. So behavior flows from from nature. What we do flows from who we are. And we are, by nature, sinners. So we come into this world with a sin nature. And some people manifest, display, show that nature in homosexuality. Some people show it in other ways, but we all show it in some way. So it's true to say, as we're going to see in a couple of pages in your notes, that we are born that way and made that way, that both heredity and environment both affect us. Now, that leaves us now, leads us now into the next question to answer. If I'm born with a tendency towards sin, and if I'm possibly born with a tendency towards some sin in particular, then how can God blame me if I'm born that way? How can God blame me if I'm born that way? Isn't it Adam's fault? Don't you want to strangle Adam? When you get to heaven, you guys have heard me say, people say, I want to talk to Paul, I want to talk to Moses. No, I want to get my hands on Adam. And around his Adam's apple, as a matter of fact. Say, what were you thinking? Isn't it his fault? The answer to that question is the doctrine of original sin. Bottom of page four. Bottom of page four, last paragraph. This is all due to our inherited nature, a nature inherited from the first man, Adam, and the first human sin. This raises the question, how can I be held responsible for sin I didn't commit? How can I be held responsible for actions arising from a nature that I didn't choose? The doctrine of original sin answers these questions as explained by theologian R.C. Sproul. Now, this is long, but this is such a central issue to this matter of how we are born and then how the way we are born affects what we do 
It's such an important matter, not just for homosexuality, but for everything we do, that I want to read it in its entirety, beginning on page 5. Original sin does not refer to the first sin, but to the result of that first sin. The scriptures speak repeatedly of sin and death entering the world through, quote, one man's transgression. As a result of Adam's sin, all men are now sinners. The fall was great. It had radical repercussions for the entire human race. Adam acted as a representative of the entire human race. With the test that God set before Adam and Eve, he was testing the whole of human, of mankind. Adam's name means man or mankind. Adam was the first human being created. He stands at the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden to act not only for himself, but for all of his future descendants. Just as a federal government has a chief spokesman who is head of the nation, Adam was the federal head of mankind. The chief idea of federalism is that when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. His fall was our fall. When God punished Adam by taking away his original righteousness, we were all likewise punished. The curse of the fall affects us all. Not only was Adam destined to make a living by the sweat of his brow, but that's true for us as well. Not only was Eve consigned to have pain in childbirth, but that's been true for women of all generations. The offending serpent in the garden was not the only member of his species who was cursed to crawl on his belly. Now, if God did, in fact, judge the entire human race in Adam, how is that fair? It seems manifestly unjust of God to allow not only all subsequent human beings, but all of creation to suffer because of Adam. And it's the question of this fairness that federalism seeks to answer. Federalism assumes that we were, in fact, represented by Adam and that such representation was both fair and accurate. It holds that Adam perfectly represented us. Within our own legal system, we have situations that, not perfectly, but approximately parallel this concept of representation. We know that if I hire a uh, hire a man to kill someone and that hired gunman carries out the contract, I can justly be tried for first-degree murder in spite of the fact that I didn't actually pull the trigger. I'm judged to be guilty for a crime someone else committed because the other person acted in my place. Now, the obvious protest that arises is this, but we didn't hire Adam. That's true. This example merely illustrates that there are some cases in which it's just to punish one person for the crime of another. The federal view of the fall still exudes a faint odor of tyranny. Our cry is, no damnation without representation. Just as people in a nation clamor for representatives to ensure freedom from despotic tyranny, so we demand representation before God that is fair and just. The federal view states that we are judged guilty for Adam's sin because he was our fair and just representative. Wait a minute. Adam may have represented us, but we did not choose him. What if the fathers of the American Republic had demanded representation from King George and the king replied, of course you can have representatives, you'll be represented by my brother? Such an answer would have spilled even more tea in Boston Harbor. We want the right to select our own representatives. We want to be able to cast our own vote, not have somebody else cast that vote for us. That word vote comes from the Latin votum, which meant wish or choice. When we cast our vote, we're expressing our wishes, setting forth our wills. Suppose we would have had the total freedom to vote for our representative in Eden. Would that have satisfied us? 
And why do we want the right to vote for our representative? Why do we object if the king or any other sovereign wants to appoint our representatives for us? The answer is obvious. We want to be sure that our will is being carried out. If the king appoints my representative, then I'll have little confidence that my wishes will be accomplished. I would fear that the appointed representative would be more eager to carry out the wishes of the king than my wishes. I would not feel fairly represented. But even if we have the right to choose our own representatives, we have no guarantee that our wishes will be carried out. Who among us has not been enticed by politicians who promise one thing during an election campaign to another after they're elected? Again, the reason we want to select our own representative is that we can be sure that we're accurately represented. Now notice this. At no time in all human history have we been more accurately represented than in the Garden of Eden. To be sure, we did not choose our representative there. Our representative was chosen for us. The one who chose our representative, however, was not King George. It was Almighty God. And when God chooses our representative, he does so perfectly. His choice is an infallible choice. When I choose my representatives, I do it fallibly. Sometimes I select the wrong person, and I'm then inaccurately represented. Adam represented me infallibly, not because he was infallible, but because God is infallible. Given God's infallibility, I can never argue that Adam was a poor choice to represent me. The assumption that many of us make when we struggle with the fall is that had we been there, we would have made a different choice. We would not have made a decision that would plunge the world into ruin. Such an assumption is just not possible given the character of God. God doesn't make mistakes. His choice of my representative is greater than my choice of my own. We bristle at the idea that God calls us to be righteous when we're hampered by original sin. We say, but God, we can't be righteous. We're all fallen sinners. How can you hold us accountable when you know very well we were born with original sin? Well, an illustration may help. Suppose God said to a man, I want you to trim these bushes by 3 o'clock this afternoon, but be careful. There's a large open pit at the edge of the garden. If you fall into that pit, you'll not be able to get yourself out. So whatever you do, stay away from the pit. Suppose that as soon as God leaves the garden, the man runs over and jumps into the pit. At 3 o'clock, God returns and finds the bushes untrimmed. He calls for the gardener. He hears a faint cry from the edge of the garden. He walks to the edge of the pit. He sees the gardener helplessly flailing around at the bottom. He says to the gardener, why haven't you trimmed the bushes I told you to trim? The gardener responds in anger. How do you expect me to trim bushes when I'm trapped in this pit? If you hadn't left this empty pit here, I would not be in this predicament. Adam jumped into the pit. In Adam, we all jumped into the pit. God did not throw us into the pit. Adam was clearly warned about it. God told him to stay away. The consequences Adam experienced from being in the pit were a direct punishment for jumping into it, and so it is with original sin. Original sin is both the consequence of Adam's sin and the punishment for it. We are born sinners because in Adam all fell. Even the word fall is a bit of a euphemism. It's a rose-colored view of the matter. The word fall suggests an accident of sorts. Adam's sin was not an accident. He was not Humpty Dumpty. Adam didn't simply slip into sin. He jumped into it with both feet. We jumped headlong with him. God didn't push us. He didn't trick us. He gave us adequate and fair warning. The fault is ours and only ours. So if I'm born that way, that doesn't excuse what I do because I'm born that way because of original sin, and I am justly and rightly responsible for original sin. And that's one of the things that people grapple with, with things like homosexuality, when people say, you know, I've had these struggles since 
as early as I can remember. That may well be true. But that comes from the sin nature with which we are born and for which we are responsible. And so being born with a particular disposition toward whatever kind of sin never excuses us from committing and pursuing that sin. So we need to kind of take the Jimmy Buffett approach to this. That great theologian Jimmy Buffett in Margaritaville. You know, it's nobody's fault. That's how the thing starts. But some people say there's a woman to blame. Uh, Who might that woman be? There was a gal with Adam who was, some people say, but I know it's nobody's fault. Then he goes on, by the time he gets to the end of the song, it's my own blank fault, he says. And that's where we need to get, it's my own fault. My sin nature is my fault, and the things I do and think and say are my fault as a result of that sin nature, however it expresses itself. So the middle of page 7 now, I say born that way and made that way. So are homosexuals born that way? Yes and no. Yes, if by that we mean that all are born with a sin nature and that sin and that sin nature manifests itself in different ways. Some have a tendency toward anger or dishonesty or violence. Others have a tendency toward homosexual desire. But just as the angry or lying or violent person is responsible for his actions, so too the person who struggles with same-sex attraction. Consider the struggle that most men have with heterosexual lust. It's only because of our sin nature that we look at women as objects and talk about them in locker rooms or other so-called guy talk settings in sexual terms. These bodies that we misuse because of sin are also bodies that are broken because of sin. They don't work as originally designed. The Bible says that one of the consequences of sin entering God's good world is that our physical bodies are subject to sickness, decay, and death. The creation was subjected to frustration and bondage to decay. Now, before we read that bottom portion there, we think about all of the ways our bodies are messed up. Every one of those ways that our bodies are messed up are all due ultimately to the fall, are all due ultimately to sin. They're part of the effects of sin. So therefore, friends, it should not surprise us that people come into this world born with dispositions that are contrary to God's original design for them. And so it doesn't bother me theologically in the least at all to say someone may be born that way with a particular tendency toward whatever it is, but we still have to deal with it. Bottom of page 7, therefore it should not surprise us that some guys and gals are born with bodies that are sexually broken such that their desires are not natural and their bodies do not seem to fit those desires. Why do men engage in sexual desire for what God forbids? Because they're born that way. That is, they're born with a sin nature and they're born with bodies that are broken because of that sin. That applies to heterosexual, inordinate, sinful desire and homosexual desire, and everything else that we're born with. In an article in the Journal of of the Evangelical Theological Society, Denny Burke says this, The only sex desire that glorifies God is that desire that's ordered to the covenant of marriage. When sexual desire and attraction fixes on any kind of non-marital erotic activity, it falls short of the glory of God and is by definition sinful. This principle applies to the experience of both opposite sex and same-sex desire. Now, do you all see that? 
Do you see what I was saying on the previous page? The reason that men talk about women the way they do and deal with women sexually the way they do and abuse women sexually the way they do is all because we're born that way. We're born with a sin nature that manifests itself in that way. But it shouldn't surprise us that other people are born with tendencies in other directions because our bodies are broken, because things are messed up. And Denny Burke is saying here that in both heterosexual desire that has gone awry because of sin and homosexual desire that is awry because of sin, in both of those, they amount to the same thing, that people are born broken, born distorted, born disoriented, and it manifests itself in various ways. Not only, though, are we born that way, I say in that next paragraph, in that all of us are born as sinners and struggle with different manifestations of that sin nature, but we're also made that way as we're influenced by the models that we grow up with and the cultural consensus that dominates our environment. So let me give you some examples. Here's one. The teaching and preaching I heard growing up was full of a kind of culturally accepted machismo that was passed off as biblical masculinity. It would be very easy in that environment for a boy to conclude, if that's the profile of a man, and that's not what I am, then maybe I'm not a man. Do you guys see what I'm saying there? I grew up with, and maybe some of you did too, where the idea was to present a model of manhood and masculinity that was a particular profile. You broke things, you beat people up, you know, you were a John Wayne type. You were a take no prisoners kind of kind of person. And you think about being a, and, and you were involved in sports, you were an athlete. This is what you are if you're a man. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. But the culture did. Now, you think about being a boy in that, under that preaching. And you're a boy who, from the earliest times he can remember, he struggled with his identity. He's being told by the preacher, you're not a man. Should we be surprised that at some point he then believes him? And says, oh, okay, I guess I'm not a man then. So what I'm saying is we've got to be very careful about the models we present as if those are biblical models. Those are extra biblical things. True of many men, true of most men, but not true of all men. And the Bible doesn't say that's the profile of masculinity. So I've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't present that. So that's one way the culture then can can affect us. So I say we need then to be very careful um, that the images we portray of masculinity and of femininity are strictly what the Bible says, not merely the models we grew up with and sought to emulate. The emerging cultural consensus on same-sex behavior and gender, gender identity means that Not only will the Bible's teaching on these matters be questioned, but more young people will be inclined to translate gender confusion into identity. And then following the advice of peers in the media and school counselors and so on to come out loud and proud. Some of these young people are in our churches, forcing some of us to face this issue directly, many for the first time. That paragraph's a mouthful, but I want to make sure we understand it. What the culture is promoting now for many of our young people is going to mean that the confusion that many young people have about their gender 
is going to morph much more quickly and more easily into their identity. You see, confusion has been around for a long time. When I'm 57 now. When when I, when I was a kid, there were there was always there was a girl that lived right across the street from me the whole time I was growing up, and most of our street had boys my age on it, and we all played little league and we played this and that. And this and this girl loved playing that. And what did we call a girl who did that? She's a tomboy, right? And you know we we never got into heavy discussions about any of this. But but a girl like that, back in the day, might have in her own heart and her own mind some thoughts about, okay, exactly where do I fit in all this? Maybe she has some attraction to some of her friends at school. But she didn't come out and say any of that because that wasn't the cultural expectation. And over time, what most of them did was they never translated that confusion into identity, and most of them got over it. Same thing was true for boys who didn't meet the cultural expectation and they had these thoughts about attraction and early on and they had those. They were, from their perspective at least, born with that. But they weren't going to act on that and over time most of them got over that. But guess what? That ain't happening now. Because confusion quickly becomes identity. Because today, unlike then... The moment you express any confusion about who you are, you are told by your school counselor and you are now being, you are now being shaped by the media to say, this is who you are. You need to claim who you are. You need not be ashamed of who you are. And that's where the claim it come out loud and proud idea comes. Okay. Guess what? Our children can be in that situation. And some of our children are. They're confused. That's not new. What's new is they're now in an environment where they're told this is what you are. They're told that at school. They're told that by their peers. They're told that by the media. And they come home and they say to dad and mom, this is who I am. Now what? How do I deal with that? You know, and you know, one way to deal with it is to say, Dad, no son of mine is going to be, and then just haul off and let them know you're going to be a man around here. That'd be the wrong way? It's a common way. It's a common way in Christian circles. Another common way is to tell them how awful they are. You know, with that young person, we may, we may be talking about a 14-year-old, a 13-year-old. Maybe younger now. They haven't had the time to be that clear representation of idolatry that the older, more corrupted, and I mean that in a theological sense, that someone's had time for their sin nature to then manifest its corruption. They haven't had that. And we got to deal with that for our children. So we'll talk about that on the next page. So is homosexuality normal? It's not normal from a creation perspective, from a design perspective. God made people to be heterosexual. And so you can read that on the bottom of page 8. But as top of page 9, homosexuality becomes more normal 
and acceptable in our culture, criticism of such behavior may become dangerous, even criminal. Currently, those who refuse to acknowledge homosexuality as acceptable are labeled homophobic, ignorant, and other epithets. Right? You're a homophobe. Homo, meaning same. Phobia, fear. You have a fear of homosexuals or homosexuality. So I don't know what I'm supposed to fear, but that's that's what's thrown out, right? So I guess I, I am a phobe. Uh, so if I if I had to put you know some prefix on my phobia, uh, instead of a homophobe, I would be a harmatiaphobe, because the Greek word for sin is hamartia. So I'm a sinphobe. I fear sin. I fear sin for the person doing it. I fear sin for the results of sin. I want to stay around, away from sin. I want to warn people to stay away from sin. I want to help people deal with sin. But we're called all sorts of things. So can there be, page 9, a Christian homosexual? Some outspoken practicing homosexuals proudly, proudly wear the label Christian. In fact, there's even a nationwide, quote, Christian denomination for homosexuals, the Metropolitan Community Church. There's one, or at least was one, if it's still there, in Royal Oak. Um, there were a couple of them in the metro Detroit area. These folks claim that the Bible does not condemn homosexual behavior. They offer the following arguments, that the homosexuality prohibited in the Bible was unnatural, while what is practiced today is natural. So they're trying to make the case that there is such a thing as natural homosexuality. The biblical response is never does the Bible make a distinction between acceptable and unacceptable. Heterosexual uh, sexual involvement, for instance, can be either acceptable or unacceptable depending on one's state of marriage. But the Bible never suggests that any form of homosexual behavior is acceptable. It's always treated as sinful. Some say the homosexuality prohibited in the Bible did not involve commitment. And so that was the problem. But the response is the biblical passages do not simply condemn the wrong attitudes of some homosexuals, but rather the homosexual act itself. And you can see that. And next bullet, some say that homosexuality prohibited in the Bible is part of the Old Testament law that does not apply to us today. That's true. It's part of the law that I mentioned last week. But there are prohibitions in the New Testament as well. Bottom of page nine, God has made homosexuals that way. So to be any other way is to deny God's sovereign design for their lives. But even if there is found some direct correlation between one's biological makeup and his sexuality, hear this, biology is not destiny. In other words, one's sexual behavior is too complex to reduce simply to biology. If homosexuality is connected to one's biological makeup, the Christian response should still be that of resistance and avoidance. Because we are born sinful creatures, we are naturally sinners. Yet the Bible commands us to flee from our lusts and pursue godliness. So if we are born with a sin nature, to say that something is natural then doesn't help, does it? Because nature's messed up. And it's messed up by sin, and so it needs to be corrected according to what the Bible says. Scripture clearly teaches that one cannot be a practicing homosexual and a Christian at the same time. Christians with a homosexual background will struggle with temptations just like heterosexual people do. They may even occasionally backslide and engage in homosexual sins. Those who repent of such sin and seek to change have evidence of their profession of faith that their profession of faith is genuine. 
But those who embrace and condone a homosexual lifestyle are thereby rejecting the clear teaching of the Word of God. You You all see that? So you might be born with a tendency... They might discover some gene in the future. None of that will change what the Bible teaches. That we then modify our behavior to fit what God's norm is, what God says. And just because it's natural doesn't mean it's okay because we have a sin a sin nature. The person who is, let's say, then born that way and struggles with that, that person can be a Christian, of course. And that person will struggle with that sin in ways that I never will. And I struggle with sins that they never will. And we'll both struggle together. By God's grace. So how should we treat homosexuals and their families? We're commanded to love and give the gospel to everyone regardless of the types of sins that they commit. Further, the Bible's teaching on the universality of sin ought to have a humbling effect on the believer such that he resists the sinful temptation to look down on others for their particular struggle. Therefore, when we come in contact with a homosexual, we must show him kindness and respect, make every effort to build a God-honoring relationship with him and give him the gospel. If we do not, we are disobeying and dishonoring the Lord. So I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, read that slowly, read that carefully, because that needs to be the norm at our church because that's what the Bible teaches. That's the way we approach people with sin struggles of whatever type, including homosexuality. In the radically reordered environment in which we now live, we may increasingly hear words from church members like accept and support in the context of outings, somebody coming out within our church's families. It's important to remember that the connotation of those words may be different than the denotation. Okay, the denotation is the dictionary definition. The connotation is how that's understood in context. So when someone says, you know, I mean, if, if this happens to you, you have children and your 13-year-old comes home and they've been told by the school counselor, you need to go tell your parents who you are. And they come home and say, Mom and Dad, this is who I am. You may say, I accept my child. Or you may use words like, I support my child. And if you hear a brother or sister say that, don't jump to conclusions on where they are with that. Because they may be using accept to simply mean they're still my child. And if that's the way they're using it, they're right. And if they say, I support my child, meaning I'm going to help my child, then they're right. If we mean by that, that it's okay, then they've taken the wrong choice. And I and we need to help them with that. So be careful, because this is going to happen. It already has. It's going to happen some more as time goes on within our own circles. So can homosexuals change? Can homosexuals change? Have you all, if you followed this at all in the news, you have heard of something called reparative um, therapy? Reparative therapy? Well, you could just Google that, reparative therapy. And every time you Google that, you will see this is a discredited form of therapy. Reparative therapy. And Christians and churches are often accused of engaging in reparative 
therapy. I'll explain what it is in a minute. Because we make the case that I will make in our final moments together that can homosexuals change? The answer is yes. And homosexuals can change the same way heterosexuals change. And we'll be reminded of what that is. So when we want to see someone's desires redirected in a God-honoring way, whether those are heterosexual desires or homosexual desires, when that's applied to homosexuality today, look out. Because the consensus that's quickly emerging is that's the way you are, that's the way you will always be, and you cannot change. So to say that you can change is to deny who I am. You must affirm who I am. Don't be surprised if sometime in the future there are media trucks and cameras outside CBC. They were at a church in our area just a couple of years ago. I think it was just last year, right, at Metro. And they had that very thing going on. And they had a young person in their church who had come out loud and proud, and they were trying to help that. And from what I could tell, they were trying to help them appropriately. But this is what, this is what emerged for them. You even had one lawmaker in Lansing as a result of that saying, we're going to pass a law that won't allow churches to do that. Thankfully, that didn't happen. So reparative, uh, reparative therapy, that's what they were accused of doing. Here's what reparative therapy, I had to look it up to, to learn this, but the reparative part has to do with reparations. And the therapy, the idea is that there is something that's happened in this person's background environmentally that has caused them to be homosexual. And therefore, there needs to be some kind of compensation. The therapy is to somehow do something in an opposite way to balance out what it was they got as they were growing up. That's the reparative part, compensate for it. And that's been discredited. So I don't believe in reparative theory. I don't believe that there needs to be a compensation done. I do believe that the Bible teaches conversion therapy. And when I say conversion, I mean Christian conversion. I mean coming to Jesus. I mean getting saved. Born again. And when you get saved, when you're born again, when you're regenerated, when you have the Spirit of God, when you're converted to Christ, when that happens, now what what begins to take place? The Holy Spirit of God begins to live in you, with you, changing and redirecting your desires. Does that happen completely all at once? Anybody here for whom that's happened completely all at once? Here's when it'll happen completely all at once for you. You'll be dead. And when you... When you your, your spirit goes and is with the Lord, you're perfect. When your body is reunited in the resurrection with your spirit, you're perfect in your glorified body. Until then, you'll still struggle with sin. And so will that homosexual, that person who struggles with homosexuality and same sex. Bottom of page 10. Remember that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But notice, and that's what some of you were. 
but you are washed, you are sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The following pages, then, are just standard conversion therapy from a biblical standpoint. You come to the Lord Jesus, admitting that you're a sinner with your own unique kinds of sins and struggles. Your sin manifests itself however it manifests itself. You come to the Lord Jesus and you say, Lord, I give you my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And now, Lord, I want to live for you. He gives you his Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, from the inside out, he begins to change you. And he begins to give you a greater love for your new affection for him than the love for your sinful affections you had before. That's what sanctification is. I grow in godliness. I grow in Christ-likeness as I grow in my affection for the true and living God. And I gradually begin to reject those things that I came to Christ with. Notice gradually, you will still struggle. I still struggle. 57 years old, you'd think I'd have this down by now. But I don't. And it's no surprise because the great apostle who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6 also wrote Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. Aren't you glad that he wrote that? Because it's real. That's real life. That's the real Christian life. He wrote that in Romans chapter 7. We're going to end here by ending where Paul did. He didn't leave it there. So I'm thankful that in Romans 7 Paul said that because, man, I can identify with that. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. Verse 25, he ends, last verse of Romans chapter 7, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the last verse of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 8 starts next. Remember there were no chapters and verses in the original. So this just flows now. And the next verse says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the person who struggles with same-sex sin needs. That's what the heterosexual who struggles with lust needs. That's what the housewife who struggles with gossip needs. That's what every person who engages in whatever type of sin needs. So we're going to pray. Take this opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, to bow before him as your Lord. If you know him, thank him that he is at work in your life. Gradually conforming you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for these two weeks to think about this issue from the perspective that you have given us in your word. Thank you for giving us your word so that we don't have to grope in darkness, so that we can know the truth and then we can make wise application of that truth to the issues of the day. And Lord, this is a huge issue in our day. 
And there are so many who are being enticed by it, who are being succumbed, who are are succumbing to it, who are being deceived by half-truths and non-truths. And Lord, this is a day in which what we believe about the truth is going to cost us. And so we need the courage that can only come from you, that we will stand for the truth, that we will tell the truth. But Lord, we also want to do what your word tells us. Your word tells us that you were full of truth, but it tells us first you were full of grace and truth. And we want to speak the truth in love. And so, Father, we need your aid for that as well. We need your aid for the courage to stand for the truth. And we need your aid for the wisdom and the love to speak it in a Christ-like way. And so we thank you that we've had these two weeks to explore these issues. Now we ask you to help us to put them into practice as individuals, as families, and as a church. Lord, we know not precisely what the days ahead hold, but we see the clouds on the horizon. And so we ask for your aid, and we will bring you the glory for what you accomplish through the beacon that you have called us to be as the darkness descends. We want to be a light in that darkness. We want to be a salt in the earth. And so, Lord, help us to do that by applying these things wisely. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you. And grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.